Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire. Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Hello, welcome to Star Trek from the Holodeck. This is the Lower Decks edition. I'm your host, Captain Michael. I'm on the bridge of the USS Cerritos. And at the helm is David Sabal. Hello, David. Oh, sorry, Mike. I'm fondling my dice for Batless and Binox. Okay, fondling. Is that what you call it now? Yeah, yeah, it's like a whittling stone. Okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> we are dancing around with our navels out because we don't want to be sacrificed to a sentient volcano. You don't want to actually disrespect a culture, Mike. Yeah, it's it's against the prime directive against and all that prime directive. other morality stuff, as Ransom said. So, <laughs> yes, we definitely got to abide by those rules. All right, so if you are new to our show, if you're a new listener, you can find the podcast version of this broadcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Our preferred feeds are iTunes and Spotify. But if you are a YouTube type of person, you can catch our live video feeds on our network YouTube page, youtube.com slash Digital. Be sure to click subscribe and give us a thumbs up. It does help out more than you know. Okay, so we're going to be talking about the second episode of Lower Decks' third season, titled The Least Dangerous Game. The synopsis on a tropical paradise planet, Mariner questions Commander Ransom on how he structures his away team. Boimler makes a bold career decision. It's Boimler doing Boimler stuff. That's <laughs> pretty much. That's essentially what it is. Uh, this episode was directed by Michael Mullen and written by Garrick Bernard. I want to start by saying I really appreciated how they framed this episode, or I guess you can say bookended. That's probably a better way of saying it. They bookended it, bookended it with the uh, Klingon game. Yes. Which was basically modeled after D&D. Yeah. But it also incorporated elements of the Star Trek board game yeah the the vhs board game that i love that anybody who ever has it i remember it you know you have those memes of gowron saying beige all the time yeah <laughs> I, was, I feel like such a nerd when i bought that game when i was a kid i was like this game is the best thing ever it is because you know you, the, and it's humorous too because like if you just watch the tape it's hilarious seeing like Gowron, the most serious, one of the most serious Klingons out there break character from time to time, because it, for those that are not familiar with the game, you put in the VHS tape. Doesn't Gowron say you've chosen poorly? You chose it poorly. Doesn't he say stuff like that? I, I vaguely remember. Yes. And he says like things. And if you do something really dumb, he has like this confused look on his face. Yeah. <laughs> 
And I, I remember this is what I didn't want. If you remember when, when I first talked about this <laughs> show before an episode even aired, I said, I don't want the show to become just a parody and, and Hey, you guys remember this? And that is what the show is doing, but it's also telling us a story. And I think yeah. that's why ultimately I'm okay with it because yes, they're having fun. But also when you strip away all that fun, there's something relevant there. There, there is some substance. There is. And also through these fun moments, they managed to build out the world of Star Trek a bit more and give us some idea of where things are currently in the landscape of Star Trek. Chrono- in this chronological aspect, you know what, 10, 15 years post TNG era yeah. when you take into account the Voyager era is well, actually 20 years roughly. So it's cool when you hear things like, Martok being the chancellor. <laughs> yes. Because that means Martok is obviously still the chancellor of the Klingon Empire, which the last time we saw that was, I believe, in what, the final few episodes of Deep Space Nine. Yes. After Galron was killed. Yeah, Galron was, was I think he was, yeah, he died. He in, was defeated by Worf. He it, was defeated by Worf. We're not reviewing Deep Space Nine. However, I've always had a problem with that. I'm like, how are you going to take a character like Galron that was in Star Trek for all, I would say the better part of 10 years when you take into account TNG and he was a relevant part of Worf's story. Yes. And you kill him off in a very simplistic way. Now it was about Worf and the fact that he was always a bit of a, he started off as a bit of an antagonistical force for Worf and TNG. Then they became friends. Then they didn't like each other. Then they became friends. And then he used them in deep space nine, took the credit, you know, for some of the things Worf did. He was vital for Worf's story, but the way they just simply, all right, well, you know, we're coming to the end of the show. So we're going to have to finally wrap up his storyline. It felt rushed. Yeah. Because like not getting uh, sidetracked too much. Too late. Right. (laughs) Well, especially since you brought up one of the elements, that's actually one of the things that was really important for me for deep space nine that I did not like was the end of Worf's story and how they treated the character of Galron. Because at the end of the day, Gowron got turned into a villain. Yeah. And I, I, it never sit well with me because in, if you watch his character arc in, in TNG, he was an ally. He was he an was, opportunist. He was an opportunist, but he was always on the side of Worf and Picard. Honor. He was an honorable guy. And yeah. the, the way they, that's, I don't have a lot of problems with D Space Nine. I love that show, but that's one element. That's one element that never or, sat well. With it's me. not even an element, it's a story point because, yeah. like, just like you said, they. Uh, they changed his character from like this antagonistic kind of ally to just a straight villain. Oh, yeah. he's been using Worf the whole time. Yeah, it's weird. And when he got when I when that happened, I was like going, I look back at it now through my weird watch, and it looks like they just did it for shock for, to to shock value. Mm-hmm. And then, just like you said, after that, they were like, well, we don't know what to do now. Let's just clean the slate. Listen, if we're (laughs) voicing these types of complaints, then it's only a matter of time before Mike McMahon actually turns it into a parody and makes fun of it. Cause that's what he does best. He mocks things that we never even thought about in that way. Things that we didn't think could be mocked. He finds a way to make it funny, flip it on its head and and make us all view it from a different angle. Uh, Now bringing it back specifically to this episode, let's talk a little bit about that game. (laughs) <laughs> of course, this game was called Batleths. 
and something else. I don't remember the second Binox. part of the name. Binox? Binox. Batleths and Binox. It's a take, as you mentioned, on the classic tabletop RPG Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. But it also incorporates elements of the Star Trek board game, Star Trek The Next Generation, a Klingon challenge. Challenge. <laughs> which was, as you said, an interactive VHS board game that took place on the USS Enterprise D. The game included taped instructions and interactions with a Klingon named Kavak, who had commandeered the Enterprise. And the best part by far is like Kavak was a stand in for Galron, but he's still played by Robert Riley, who plays yeah. Galron. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the thing that cracked me, the thing I loved the most, I think they did that because there are moments where Robert Riley as Kavak is the funniest thing in the, in everything because he has to deal with, there's at one point in the VHS, you have to deal with pack lids. And there's times yeah. when, Oh, I don't remember that. It's part of the VHS. It's one of my favorite moments because like at one point, Kavak basically just breaks character and turns to the camera and looks at the players and basically says, what do we do now? <laughs> 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 and, and, and like you have to actually figure out okay what do you have to do for these pack leads? will you help them make them strong <laughs> i love that mike man brings like this is a deep cut dude oh it is and this is something that only the hardest of star trek fans would remember and also you have to be a certain age because let's say you were born in late 90s and you're a younger Star Trek fan. You're not going to remember this. No one's going to remember you're, you're, this. You didn't, do, you didn't go into the bowels of the internet and dig up some, you know, rare game that probably was never even that popular. Probably didn't sell that much. In fact, I swear I was the only, at that time, I was the only one that actually owned a copy <laughs> of the game. Oh, you're, no, you weren't the only one. I owned this. Well, of course, of I, I didn't game. know you at that time. That's I mean, true. just the circles I was in is like, what is this thing <laughs> you're playing with? Well, Star Trek. It's Star Trek. <laughs> just to switch gears a bit, this episode was a bit all over the place in the way of parody. Parody, yes. For example, the planet Dulane that the Cerritos was orbiting had this thermosphere, I believe is how they described it, that was filled with charged ions. That's something we've seen a lot of times in Star Trek that essentially prevented the away team from transporting and the orbital lift and the subsequent skydive by yeah. Ransom and Mariner. It appeared to be modeled after the 2009 Star Trek Kelvin timeline reboot. Oh, absolutely. That's that's what I thought when I first yeah. saw that, especially when they decided to jump down and do the parachute. That That was a... That instantly made me remember the, the what, first movie. Is that, was this our first Kelvin timeline nugget parody? I don't think we've had any other. Oh my God. I think you're right. Yeah. So I was wondering when somebody in this era of Star Trek was going to start paying attention to those movies and the fact that they do exist in Star Trek canon. So Thank you, Mike McMahon. I know Star Trek Discovery did it very briefly, but at least they did it in what season three. They mentioned the Kelvin, <laughs> the timeline. Kelvin timeline finally. But outside of that, it's it's almost like the Kelvin timeline has become the the redheaded stepchild of Star Trek. It kind of has. I mean, the only one, the only series up to this point that has actually fully 
embraced it or even acknowledge it was discovery. And they had to because of the nature of what they were doing. Yes. With their own multi-universal stories. The planet was also ruled by a psychic baby, an AI talking cube, (laughs) and a sentient volcano. I mean, come on, dude. This obviously was a a smorgasbord of various tropes, I would call them, from the original series. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And they just threw them all together. And that's why I thought it was funny that Mariner called it out. She's like, okay, this is an overkill because it absolutely <laughs> was. That's the first thing I thought when they said a psychic baby, a AI robot, robot. whatever that thing was, <laughs> and then the sentient volcano. So they at least called themselves out with these massive parodies because usually in, in Lower Decks, one thing that I appreciated is that it's not just an eclectic um mash of random parodies from various different Star Trek TV episodes. For the most part, it's governed under a theme each episode. And if you notice, I like when they do that because it feels like there's a plan and a strategy. Mm -hmm. When you get an episode like this, it doesn't really quite feel like a strategy. It feels like it's almost like string of consciousness (laughs) rather than using a singular theme to govern the parody moments. Well, yeah, especially when you take it into context about the society that the three entities governed over the erotic culture, the erotic culture, which is from TNG. I mean, how many times did we see Picard or Riker, you know, go to some planet and it involved stripping down almost. Yes. uh, Or at least being around people who were hedonistic Meanwhile, Kirk is like going, God damn it, why can't I be on these planets? He didn't need those planets to get lucky. He just flashed his winning smile and panties dropped. Dude. And panties dropped. He doesn't need a culture to be extremely into the arts of eroticism the- to get lucky. He's just Kirk. He's always lucky. He's dude. always lucky. Yeah. <laughs> he can talk his way to any lady's panties. Or gentlemen's for that, if you, if you want to get in, go in that direction. I'm sure it's been done. He could probably talk into Cranch's species. And that's valid. <laughs> the writers also went to great lengths to draw parallels on, and uh, I, yeah, I, yeah, I would say this, parallels and, and poke fun at Star Trek's ethical relativism, where they respect all cultures, no matter what. what? Yes. This... Uh, in my opinion, paved the path for some funny moments between Rutherford and Billups, which is what we get on that planet. Yes. And, and, and I'm sorry, the, the, at the end of the day, Ransom is the one who saves the day by just stripping his shirt off. And suddenly everyone is like in awe of his, of his physique. And then everything's fine. Now, if Ransom is at the center of an episode, chances are at this point, we can probably figure out that there'll be some moment where his muscles or his <laughs> physical form will save the day. Yes. And I love the fact that basically in this particular story, it's not used for it's on top of that. It's not just used for fun, uh, like laugh's sake. It's basically, it continues that story that Mariner does not trust anything of Starfleet because think about it. The last episode, I think she's just jaded. It's not, I don't think it's lack of trust. I think she's just jaded. Remember in the last episode, she basically came out and said she doesn't trust anything. Starfleet. She didn't trust the courts. 
you didn't trust the the court. The court you mean the federation? The federation. Yeah. And then in this one, it's that continuing truth that she doesn't trust Ransom, who's a higher authority figure, and just trying to help her out, even though he does have his own agenda. I think he's just, or she's just a know-it-all. Yeah. You know, she just wants to be right, and she's quick to rebel because she feels that she knows best. She knows best. And it's like, no, you got to work with the Federation. you got to work under these, under these systems, and it'll work out in the end. But you know what they're doing, David? They're doing what the writers of Discovery refuse to do. They hold characters accountable for their exactly. actions. That's why I like that this that they're doing this pairing. Because last season they they fixed some of they softened some of the edges of Mariner's character by giving her a closer relationship with her mother. Yeah. You know, help repair some of her less than ideal character traits that she had in the first season, which worked. I'm not complaining about the first season. I felt like the rough around the edges mentality was the point of the first season. When it comes to Mariner's story, that was the point she needed to realize that she has a lot of mature maturing and growing to do the second season built off of that. And then now we have the third season also focusing on rectifying Mariner's less than stellar qualities. Yes. Helping her to become a better Starfleet officer and not undermining her as a character by doing so, because that's what I think a lot of people think they can't do in this modern age, because uh, the social climate dictates that we have diversity and we should. And I think you just, uh, the, the thing you just said just a second ago, I think that is the overall story arc that we're going to get for this season is making a uh, making a better Starfleet officer because if you look at like how this story is structured Mariner has to get better in trusting you know trusting the process and trusting also her team much like how a Federation bridge crew is built meanwhile Boimler he just has to actually get better just as a Federation officer in general the qualities like bravery and, you know, not being scared all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and we'll get to that in a second, but I want to, I want to stay on this just a bit because even though this is a silly cartoon and people can say there's no relevance here, we know Mike McMahon understands the ins and outs of Star Trek. And we know that he has his own little commentary on the world of Star Trek built into lower decks. Yes. And some of it is for comedic sake. And there's also some criticism there. Mm-hmm. There is. There is. Whether you're talking about the the, the Rick Berman era or um, the the new Kurtzman era, he doesn't really play favorites necessarily. And I feel like what he's doing with Mariner is a way of of saying that you can have lead female characters, you can have diverse characters, and yet not make them a Mary Sue. Exactly. You can you can make imperfect characters and it doesn't undermine the credibility of that character or undermine femininity or people of color because people are people people are imperfect people need to grow people need to mature right yes well same thing with characters characters don't need to always be put on that pedestal and idolized and worshiped kirk never was 
Picard never was. Cisco never was. They all had their problems, deep-rooted problems that they all had to deal with. Mm -hmm. Kirk was borderline xenophobic. He had to learn to contend with that. He was obsessed with vengeance, and he hated an entire species because one member of that species killed his son. Killed his son. Picard had so many psychological issues and uh, pertaining to the Borg and traumas and his inability to to open up emotionally. And that's one thing that was great about the second season of Picard is they finally actually delved into that aspect because that's been a part of Picard since day one. Oh, yeah. Cisco, same thing. Uh, Janeway, same thing. Dealing with, you know, do I do I allow myself to turn into something else way out here in the middle of nowhere? Or do I maintain my, do I hold true and hold fast to my Starfleet and Federation training? Or do I allow myself to become something different in order to survive? And she did at times make mistakes and go in what you would call the wrong direction. But that's because those are real moments. Star Trek's always have been about has always been about the human condition and everything that encompasses. And that's why at the end of the day, when you look at the commentary that's being done through Mariner, it says a lot. It says a lot that you have a deeply flawed character who is capable. But what does Mike McMahon and his writers do every season? They show us that she has to grow. They show us that they need to restrain her just a bit so she can learn. Because at the end of the day, Mike McMahon always finds a way, especially in the past two episodes, to emphasize these guys are the lower decks. They're not, you know, the high tier. They are not a Picard. They're not a Kirk. These guys are the lower decks. They're just learning still. They're cadets at most. (laughs) And, and, And like... Becoming a, a true Starfleet officer takes time and it takes learning experiences. And even once you have taken all the time you need and you have learned everything you need to learn, you're still going to make mistakes because yeah. you're not perfect. And, and the reason why I love what they're doing is not only is it holding Mariner accountable, holding these characters accountable, but also it, it does hold up the mirror a bit to what's going on over in discovery. Now I am a discovery fan. In fact, I probably like discovery more than Picard. And even though it's not better than strange new worlds, I probably like it better if that makes sense. But one of the biggest problems is Burnham. Yeah. I like her character a lot. She's flawed, but they never really hold her accountable and they never really, she never really learns any real lessons. No, because everything that Burnham finds a way. She finds a way to prove that her way was right all along. And Mariner's story is like the opposite of that. She's the one that basically says, no, this has to be the way we can, uh, we, we have to do it. But at the end of the day, all of a sudden she's shown, no, there's other ways. But also she's just wrong sometimes because that's just how it is. Yeah. And she has to pay her price. I mean, dude, the the moment when she parachutes down because she jumps the gun and thinks that she has to be the one to go save uh, Rutherford and everybody. And all of a sudden she comes to realize that Ransom was actually correct. She stops 
stops herself just in time, but she still has to pay a price because she has to climb all the way up those freaking steps. <laughs> exactly. And, and it, 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 it really encapsulates the storyline that basically Mariner thinks that she is the hot shit. And yes, she has a lot of potential to become a great Starfleet She's officer. extremely talented. She's extremely talented. But this is about becoming a great Starfleet officer. There's more to a Starfleet officer than just great talent. You got to be a part of the group. You got to be part of the group. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the thing that really kept this episode together, it actually wasn't Mariner this, this week. She was a big part of it. Yeah. But what really kept the episode focused was Boimler. Yes. They fleshed out various moments that add to Boimler's goals as a Federation officer. You know, his desires since what season one to be a captain. Yes. Which was spurred on by a recent colleague's promotion. And through that, the episode got to work on developing why Boimler is getting passed up in the way of promotions. And basically it plays into the aspect that he plays it too safe. He plays it too safe and he's afraid of trying new things. So he makes an attempt to move outside his comfort zone. And by doing that, it, creates these funny moments of of just sheer comedic brilliance yes where we see him being thrown in all these silly situations and for the most part it works out for him but then that last bit where he agrees to be the prey prey <laughs> hunted you know it doesn't necessarily go his way because he's learning that basically just because someone gives you advice <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean use the advice all the time yeah like i love the fact that Tindy basically gave him some very sound advice. Go try out something new. Stop saying no to everything. Mm -hmm. So Boimler being Boimler. And, and the funny part is, is like, boy, I love how they portray Boimler here because he's even more relatable after this. Cause I know so many young guys that I've met that are exactly like Boimler who you tell them, stop saying no. Okay, I'm going to say nothing but yes. Okay, hold on a second. This sounds very rapey. You, you meet <laughs> y lots of young boys and you tell oh, them to <laughs> say Probably not the best way to say it. Again. What, but, what, what, I don't know. Do I want to know this story? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but basically, like, when you tell them, it's kind of like, better, better, better analogy is when you scold a pet and it decides not to pee anymore. Okay. That's cool. Okay. You know, I'll allow that one. You, you, it pees everywhere, and then you scold it, and suddenly it won't pee now. And then you got to take it to the doctors afterwards Wait, because it gets a urinary tract infection. Oh, okay. I thought you bet you scolded it and then beat them. No, 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 no. Okay, because never beat them. Never beat an animal. That's okay. bad. Mate. Okay. Well, well, I know they're on your menu sometimes when you go back to your. Sometimes home. you got to be hungry when you go to your home world. <laughs> you got to be hungry. <laughs> You know, hunger does a lot of things. But <laughs> yeah, so Boimler was a, a funny part of this episode. Oh, it was the it was some of the funniest parts. Especially, I was cracking up at the very end of the prey one, mm. where <laughs> I was expecting something to happen, like someone to step in. Nah, the the alien. Uh, I think its name is Crash, or is it? But you, yeah, something like that, yeah. But he pulls out a selfie stick, <laughs> takes a picture, and basically says, "Oh, my species actually practices catch and release." And I'm like, "Oh my god, <laughs> that's good stuff." 
there was an episode, Dave, maybe you could, rem- could recall this for me because I don't remember which episode it was. And I may be getting these episodes confused. Like maybe there's two of them I'm thinking of and mm-hmm. I'm merging them. But there was an episode where Picard, I think he died. No, no, no. You know what? It was the episode that Q took him back in time. Back in time. And it was about his heart when he got nearly killed by the Nosigans. Yeah, because he got stabbed in the chest. He got stabbed in the chest, which was the whole backstory behind why he had an artificial heart. Mm-hmm. But if you remember, he made another decision. And that decision saved him from getting stabbed and he had a real heart. Yes. But after that point in his life, he never took risks again. With that one moment where he decided to play it safe, it changed every other decision he made throughout the rest of his life, and he never made it to be a captain. Yes. Because Q brought him back to his time, and he was like a lieutenant in like the science department. In the science department. It was yep. so funny because it felt so insulting that he was no longer a captain. And like everyone in the crew looked down at him. Yeah, because he <laughs> played it safe. So I'm wondering if that episode was an inspiration for this. Oh, it could be. It could be. Because like if you think about it, what happens to Boimler in the end? He gets stabbed with the freaking spear. <laughs> yeah, right in the right in the heart. Right in the heart. And I'm like going, um this seems vaguely familiar. <laughs> the only thing that would have made it better is if it was a Nosigan. If it was a Nosigan. It probably yeah. should have been a Nosigan. Dude, when I saw when I saw the alien at first that hunts him, I thought it was their take on uh, Saru's race. Remember oh, yeah. the, the, the things that basically hunt the others race. Yeah. I looked it up and we've never seen the alien. In fact, I believe on the memory alpha wiki, it lists currently as of this recording, it lists that species as unknown unknown. Yeah. It doesn't even list a first appearance, which would be lower decks. It, huh. it says in the synapses unknown species because it kept talking about the prey element. And I'm like going, is this freaking Saru's race? That'd be kind of cool. I mean, we do know that at this point they are, were they a part of Federation? No, I don't think they were because yes, this is what a hundred years roughly. Yes. After that. I'm not sure. I'll have to look it up. All right, Dave, this does bring us to our final thoughts and our RMD score. Why don't you start things off? Uh, this easily, this episode to me is a 89. It's basically on par with the the premiere, mm-hmm. but there are elements in this episode I really loved. I mean, just because I am a lifelong Dungeons and Dragons fan, the fact that they started the whole episode with that just brought a big smile to my face, got me all giddy. But just like we alluded to earlier, I love the fact that Mike McMahon uses his, brings in his you know, type of comedy into his storytelling, but he never deviates from the story. If you pay attention, there's a really good story being told here about like becoming a Starfleet officer. What is, what does it take to become a Starfleet officer when you start at the very bottom? Yeah. And what qualities does it take? And yeah, Mike McMahon throws his own satire, uh, satirical element to it and say, is this the way the perfect Starfleet officer should be? Or, you know, is there other ways of looking at it? And I think that that's where the genius of Lower Decks comes in is like, you can look at this as kind of like a Rick and Morty where, oh, I'm just laughing at the the oddness and the weirdness of everything. 
Or you can really dive into it and say, oh my God, there's a really deep story being told here. And there's elements that are laid out. I mean, even when you take into Mariner's growth, I mean, I like the fact that you brought the fact that each season we've seen a different side of Mariner's growth as a person that has Mm -hmm. made her now more likable Yeah, (laughs) from where she was in season one. Well, isn't that like at the heart of a lot of stories, right? Where you see a character who doesn't have a lot of humility. Yeah. Who then makes mistakes. They must learn from those mistakes. And by that process, they become better individuals. They learn more about themselves. They learn how to interact with others in a more respectful and better, I guess you can say for lack of better words on my part. Uh, they have better relationships with people. So yeah, yeah I, I, I actually kind of like seeing what they've been doing with her over the last three seasons. And remember when we first started, I remember it was just the first episode that yeah. we had problems. Yeah. Where all of a sudden you, you came out and said, this person is unlikable. Yeah. Well, she was, <laughs> she was obnoxious, but obnoxious. by the second episode, I didn't, I didn't see it that way. Mm-hmm. Is only the the first episode. Maybe I didn't know what to expect. I, I'd have to go back and rewatch. Okay, Dave. So my RMD score is eighty four percent. It was a fun episode. Uh, didn't have anything, you know, that I would say a big issue there. However, I do feel like this episode is a little subpar when compared to the other episodes we've witnessed, only because. Yeah, there are those moments we talked about with Mariner that I, that I loved and, and Boimler, but for the most part, a good episode of Lower Decks has been governed under a, usually a singular theme, sometimes two. This felt ADD. It just was like, well, that, and then we did this, then we did this. You remember that? <laughs> okay. You remember this? It was almost like, Hey, anything goes. It was a, a smorgasbord of just boom, 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 boom. And I don't feel like that takes as much smarts to write i feel like when you're giving yourself rules like a type of aesthetic theme per se i guess you're challenging yourself you're making yourself stay on track this negates that process and it just feels like hey anything goes there's no rules so that's why i'm giving it an 84 percent. and i feel like a little bit of a douchebag because we're dealing with lower decks i mean it's just a fun show but it's what we do, right, Dave? It is. It is. There is a standard we have to live up to. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so you know what, David? We're going to end this show by reminding people to head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Digital, and pledge 3 to $5 a month and gain access to our companion show, Unimatrix Zero, which is basically a mini show, a mini version of this. It's a little more casual. We get into things that we can't always get into on the regular show. And when you subscribe for three bucks a month, you'll gain access to that. If you want all of our full catalog of podcast discussions pertaining to Star Trek, you pledge five and you'll gain an instant access to that entire library as well as any future content that we put out. Patreon.com. You know, it's time to end a show when I can't talk. When it's time. Patreon.com slash Rainman Digital. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.